Basic Biology Podcast. With James Conway. And Charlie Blake. What have you been doing then, Charlie? Not much, mate. Just working, trying to get fit, getting ready for Glasgow next week. Going to be pretty oi, sick. Oi. Um, what about you, mate? Well, I've just been, you know, in the in the lab, doing my, my project as discussed in, in previous podcasts. It's been going pretty well. I'll uh, let you know how that goes when we get a bit closer to the the end but it all seems to be going quite well so far how's your hay fever this week uh it's totally fine how's yours i am very i'm struggling probably the, uh hay fever is coming hard this year probably differences in pollen i reckon different yeah of pollen i think i don't get it every pollen. year it's just this year it's, oh, it's well, hit me hard it's the tree pollen that gets me but maybe it's all pollen for you maybe it's the tree and the grass oh. welcome to episode four a new dope pink scandal has emerged in russia as 33 russian athletes have been banned for doping cases. This time it was Rosada, which is Russia's anti-doping agency that uh, detected um, high levels of banned substances in 33 athletes. 19 were track and field. Uh, there was also five cyclists, a uh, boxer and a gymnast. So as it always, it's usually track and field that seem to be in court out. I think probably because of the more athletic demand, same with cycling. Um, obviously, a lot of other sports are more creative, so you don't necessarily need, or f- well, some people feel the need uh, to take performance-enhancing drugs more if they're doing a more physically demanding sport. Although everyone's every sport's demanding in its own way. So, do we know yeah. what the uh, the drugs are? Um, no, obviously it's a range of substances. It's thirty-three different athletes um, overall, but. I'd like to say that it's good that uh, Rosada has actually reported this because obviously there were some concerns about Russia's anti-doping agencies um, and they're only caught out in the past by um, the sort of world anti-doping agencies. So the fact that uh, this is Russia's own agency that has called them out uh, shows that they're trying to clean up their act, which is nice. Nice to see them stepping up to the mark. Well done, Russia. So I'd like to talk to you this week about leptin and its biology which is uh for those of you who don't know it's a hormone involved in hunger and there's been a study published by yale university this week which offers an insight into leptin and it's it's role in appetite overeating and obesity uh so these these findings are pretty good they they definitely advance the knowledge about leptin and weight gain and also suggest potential strategy for developing uh therapies for weight loss potentially in the future by hijacking the cell's molecular mechanisms so as i say this uh this study was published by Yale uh, in PNAS, as I call it, or it's the uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, an American journal, very high impact. So leptin is secreted by your fat cells, and that kind of just tells the brain when there's fuel stored in, the, in body fat and when the liver is uh, running out, basically, of energy. But it's not been really known before how the concentrations of leptin in your blood act on appetite. So this research studied the biology of uh, leptin in rodents 
and they investigated nerve cells in the brain known as AGRP, which is uh, a Guti-related peptide in so yeah, AGRP neurons, which regulate this behavior, the eating behavior. Um, so they're looking to see uh, what the effects of leptin are on these AGRP neurons. And they discovered that there are mechanisms where when plasma is uh, low, plasma concentration of leptin is low, um, there will be food uh, intake stimulation. Um, but that's not limited to the brain, as previously thought. So in rodents, if they uh, fasted, then that activates leptin receptors in the brain. And that's then followed by uh, another step, which involves the endocrine system, um, which is the pituitary and adrenal glands. So um, for those of you that don't know, leptin is the satisf- is it the satisfied hormone. So when yes. you've had enough food, you have high levels of leptin, whereas ghrelin, on the other hand, when that's high in concentration, that will stimulate hunger. Yes. So ghastly ghrelin was what our old lecturer used to say, because it's bad and it makes you put on weight. And that's the way to remember it. That's what I was told by my university lecturer. Um so they found another experiment as well. So uh, you may know, you may have heard of cortisol, which is the, the human stress hormone. Uh, rodents don't actually have cortisol as their main stress hormone. They have corticosterone. Um, so they were looking at corticosterone because it's analogous to cortisol. Um, so corticosterone, they showed, activates these uh, AGRP neurons, which then increase the hunger um, when leptin... Uh, in the blood is low so when basically you've not had enough uh, satiety when you've not eaten then it's going to stimulate these neurons to increase hunger so it's kind of the similar sort of effect to what ghrelin would have as charlie just described um so there's yeah very good study really um it just shows the basic biology of leptin um and it means that potentially these agrp neurons could be targeted uh to the, the receptors for AGRP and for uh, leptin, that means that they could be targeted uh, for potential weight loss therapy. So it'll be good to see how that uh, develops over the next few years. Do you think that is a good ethical uh, technique? Well, I, th- I think if, if it follows the the, the pr- procedures that we would normally do with a molecular technique like that, I mean, there's, there are pros and cons and it should be discussed and it should be trialed first in, in tissues and how expensive do you think it would be relative to what we've seen so far with weightless uh, weight loss technique? Well, it really depends how it's marketed, to be honest. And I think different medical systems in different countries will have different uh, different ideas uh, about how they're going to market it. I mean, in this country, it may be free on the NHS, but um, in other other countries, maybe not. So it could be something that's only available to people with the money for it. It may not even turn into anything at all. So I think that's a question to ask ourselves when we get a little bit closer to a, an actual treatment this is obviously quite a few years off yet we've only just really discovered a mechanism and now people have to try and figure out a translational capacity for that particular mechanism in this week's pause for thought segment i'll be talking about marathon running and specifically asking the question will someone ever be able to run a sub two hour marathon we are now well into marathon season with a new course record being set by Elliot Kipchoge earlier this year at the London Marathon. Where's he from? He is from Kenya. Very good. But yeah, he was just under a minute away from his official personal best um, this year at London. Um, He achieved his personal best and the current world record at the Berlin Marathon last year, so 2018. And you may remember that almost two years ago, Nike launched their 
Breaking 2 project, which tried to beat the two-hour mark by using a range of controlled techniques, including an arrowhead formation of surrounding runners that created a drafting effect and also helped with pacing. Um, and these runners were uh, brought in every so often, so they had fresh pacemakers um, every so often, and they'd sort of, yeah, like almost like slide them in. Like what the birds do. Really well. Uh, yeah, probably, yeah. It probably was something like that. Um, so the formation was never really disturbed too much. Uh, so Kipjogi also ran in custom-built shoes and around the Monza circuit in Italy, which has very few sharp corners. Obviously, sharp corners slow down the athletes, or any corner does, but the sharper the corner, the more it slows them down. Uh, they achieved a time of 2 hours and 23 seconds, so just 23 seconds away from the 2-hour mark, Ooh. Um, which obviously beat the current, current world record by over a minute. However, because um, it was under controlled conditions, um, it did not class as a world record. Why even bother? I guess just to see if it's possible, isn't it? Yeah, it's all science, really. It's, it's an experiment more than anything, and it's definitely shown that it's almost possible. Um, Perhaps they'll get there soon. Yeah. I mean, what's 23 seconds in the scheme of a, a whole marathon? Well, you think they say that, but when literally years on years, they're just knocking seconds off to have like almost like well, two minutes um, of the off the uh, last previous record um, before he ran his time at Berlin last year. Um, it was pretty significant. And yeah, the major limiting factor that they can think of was the temperature, which was around 5 to 10 degrees more than the optimum temperature. Um, obviously, they want it to be fairly cool so you don't overheat. Um, obviously, overheating means you're less efficient when you run. Um, I guess also so, not too cool either, though. No, not too cool. You want the muscles to be warm enough but for this question uh, one exercise physiologist called Michael Joyner um, has proposed that an ideal athlete under ideal conditions could run a marathon in one hour 57 minutes and 58 seconds big claim big claim and they're still more than two minutes away so I'm not sure it's possible or not but I mean we're never going to have the perfect athlete so I think maybe that time is a bit of a stretch but I think under two hours is certainly possible. But what do you think? I reckon it'll happen soon. I reckon uh, next next five years for sure. Yeah. Just going how they've been going, I mean, you know. Yeah, I mean they've yeah, so they're breaking records like every year it seems. I mean, obviously yeah, Kipchoge broke the London Marathon record this year. You know, the Berlin Marathon I think is in sometime in autumn. So could happen then. And Berlin is famous for world records because it's got very few sharp corners. Very flat. Very flat as well, yeah. Compared to other circuits. Okay, I'm going to talk about my good friend the brain now, as I am a neuroscience man. Um, so the headline uh, in a, an article from the 20th of June 2019, which is yesterday at time of recording, is that um, epilepsy and sudden death are linked to a bad gene. So um, why epilepsy and sudden death? So... Uh, Sometimes, if you are epileptic, um, if you're having a seizure, people can stop breathing for no apparent reason and die. But these guys have tried to figure out why that's going on. Nobody knew why before. So, um, yeah, people with epilepsy do have quite a high mortality rate compared to those without epilepsy. Um, what's kind of weird about that is um, the seizures usually start in the cortex, which is the top part of the brain, the top and front. Um but 
the bit that controls breathing and heartbeat, which would cause death if they if they failed, um, are down in the brainstem, down at the bottom. So how does the seizure at the top of the brain cause death um, as a result of problems at the bottom part of the brain? Uh, nobody knew why before. So this is uh, looking into, I'm going to use the, the acronym SUDEP, which is uh, Sudden Unexpected Death in Epilepsy. Okay, so this was two graduate students, or I guess we'd call them postgraduate researchers here in the UK, uh, doing this study. So what they did, uh, they raised mice with the human mutation for a severe form of epilepsy, which is called Dravet syndrome, um, which is normally caused by mutations in a gene that um, it shapes the sodium channels, uh, which are important in neural function. So if those sodium channels aren't working properly, then cells can get overexcited. So they're going to send more signals, which is kind of like what a seizure is. Um, and that sort of makes like a hysteria through a crowded stadium as they're stampeding into a seizure, as they've described it. Um, so yeah, there's a gene that's mutated in Dravet syndrome that's been identified um, called sodium channel gene 1A, which is, or Sucan 1A. Um, so that's kind of, it's considered a big culprit for epilepsy. Um, there's loads and loads, it's like over, over a thousand mutations identified in the Sucan 1A um, gene. Um, so the Dravet one, the Dravet mutation is on a very severe end, causes very severe problems. Um, but there's a very paradoxical part to Dravet syndrome, which is that the, the mutation makes the sodium channels less active, not more active. Um, so instead of making cells overactive, it makes them underactive. But the mutation affects inhibitory cells, so cells that have a negative effect, negative signal output. Um, so they're the cells that are in charge of calming the brain down, basically. So they're like the, the, the bouncers in the stadium, if we go with this, this whole stadium uh, analogy. Um, and if those bouncers are asleep on the job, then the stampede can get through uninhibited. Uh, so how does this lead to this sudden death in epilepsy? Um, they were to first take a look to see whether these mice with the Dravet syndrome showed problems with breathing and die prematurely, uh, and also whether those cells in the brainstem that control the breathing are normal or somehow sort of changed by the mutation. Um, so the, the first question was answered very quickly. Um, those mice did have very bad seizures and they became more severe when the mice got very hot, which is exactly like... Uh, humans with Dravet syndrome have. So it's quite a good animal model um, on that, in that regard. Uh, and they also die very young, so kind of also a very good model. Uh, the second question, though, took quite a lot longer to answer. So there were kind of early clues that they were onto something uh, because the mice had disordered breathing uh, and they tended to hypoventilate, so they don't breathe enough for no apparent reason sometimes. Um, and they have long apneas or pauses between breaths of regular breathing. Um, these mice didn't breathe more in response to high carbon dioxide levels in the air, which human and mice would normally do, so there's a difference there. Um, so that, that model definitely reflects the human condition very well. Um, and they checked out the, these mice's brainstems then. Um, they saw that the inhibitory cells were less active than they should have been in this model, um, and that led to excitatory neurons, so the opposite type, the, the excitable type, um, running, running rampant, basically. Um, and they were telling the part of the brain that generates the breathing rhythm to push faster, so hyperventilation. Now. So there's, there's got to be something going on with the breathing circuit in the brainstem in these mice. Um, but they can't really figure out exactly what yet. But hopefully they will with future research. So they're still carrying on, and they're going to look now to see, um, looking with, with mice that express 
the succin 1a mutation in the brainstem sort of only in the brainstem or in only in the cortex so to see if there's a difference between the two and then they're going to see if mice with the mutation in the cortex but not the brainstem don't have SUDEP which would mean that um, the seizure wouldn't be descending from the cortex of the brainstem uh, or maybe they do so we'll we'll see what happens there and they're also going to look at other parts of the breathing circuit to see whether other parts have gone wrong or not so hopefully they're going to hopefully identify a, a key player as we say um, that can be calmed or prodded to prevent the breathing system from breaking down so some sort of intervention um, to see if hopefully we can save the lives of all these people who have epilepsy so that's done by the university of connecticut if you want to look further into it and the original paper is called disordered breathing in a mouse model of dravet syndrome which is by qo and cleary so that's about all we've got time for this week uh, but tune in in future episodes i've been james conway and I'm Charlie Blake. Check us out on iTunes and SoundCloud. Yes, if you've not um, listened cloud. to them already. We're also on Spotify, so we've got three mediums you can listen to us on. We're uh, gradually taking over the whole internet. We're a triple threat. So, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.